Hello and welcome to Spy Hard Podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. And Cam, I do believe we have a special agent joining us later on. That's right. He's waiting in the wings. Uh, Tyler, who um, works with me on the Subspace Transmissions podcast, is going to swing by to tackle today's movie. I'm very excited. Speaking of, Cam, what is today's movie? We are going to take on the 1975 drama Three Days of the Condor, starring a young up-and-comer named Robert Redford. Never heard of him. Right you are, folks. Here is the synopsis of Three Days of the Condor from Letterboxd.com. His CIA codename is Condor. In the next 72 hours, almost everyone he trusts will try to kill him. A bookish CIA researcher finds all his co-workers dead and must outwit those responsible until he figures out who he can really trust. Hmm. You know what? I was going to make some sort of joke like I gave this one a C on my cam letter grade for Letterboxd um, synopses. I could give this one a C for Condor. But you know what? That would just be, uh, if I were to do that now, I would just be being smug for the sake of being smug. I actually think this one's pretty effective. I'll give it a B plus. Yeah, it's, it, I don't think it's a complete home run, but it's uh, to the point and doesn't give too much away, which is what I really look for in these sort of things. Yeah, it's effective. Whoever wrote that, good job. Thank you. I appreciate it. As we said last week, neither of us have seen this film going into it this week. So we're not going to do our usual sort of previous thoughts on the film. What we're going to do is go straight into the background and then we'll talk about the film itself when our guest joins us later. Which means it's over to you, Cam, for a little bit of behind the scenes. Yes, Three Days of the Condor is a movie that, despite being a very highly regarded entry in the spy genre... Its backstory in terms of the production is actually fairly minor. Like, it seems like it was just a well-oiled machine that, uh, you know, they got the right people together uh, and it happened. But what really kind of, I guess, got the ball rolling with this movie was um, the writer James Grady wrote the novel. It was his debut novel, um, Six Days of the Condor, not three days, six days. It was more expanded in novel form, I would say. And um, the rights to it were snapped up by um, Dino De Laurentiis and producer Stanley Schneider. And the idea would be that they were going to make this film uh, as a Warren Beatty vehicle, and it would be directed by a guy named Peter Yates. Now, Peter Yates is not a name that has really, um, I think, had a lot of longevity in terms of us making instant connections with what he's done. But um, Peter Yates directed the Steve McQueen classic Bullet, as well as the 1980s sword and sorcery film, Krull, which I know a lot of people have a lot of time for Krull. Are you one of those people, Scott? I mean, before we did this, I was hosting a one-man podcast called Krull Hearts. Uh, it didn't go anywhere, unfortunately. <laughs> no one listened to it. <laughs> it didn't go anywhere, kind of like the movie Krull. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so... Warren Beatty was circling it, but ended up going with the parallax view instead and left this movie kind of in his wake. And at that point, Robert Redford jumped on board to this film. And 
somewhere along the line, I couldn't find an exact specific incident or moment or timeline or anything in terms of where um, Peter Yates left. It seems like once Redford joined that, um, you know, Robert Redford had a long collaboration with Sidney Pollack, the director of this film. And so I feel like once uh, Robert Redford came on, Sidney Pollack just kind of joined and Peter Yates just kind of faded out. Like, I don't think it was a big dramatic takeover or anything. I think just Peter Yates left to do other things or maybe him and Redford just didn't uh, have the, you know, maybe they didn't get along that great or they just didn't, um, you know, flourish in each other's presence the way that um, Robert Redford obviously did with Sidney Pollack. Now, Sidney Pollack was a director who had started a lot in TV. He's also an actor and a producer. And, um, he really broke through after years of doing TV and some maybe lesser known movies um, with the film They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which got him an Oscar nomination for Best Director. That was a Jane Fonda film in the early 70s. And um, he had worked with um, Robert Redford before. They had worked together in 1966 on a Tennessee Williams adaptation called This Property is Condemned. Um, This is not a movie that I am familiar with at all, so this doesn't lead me to believe that it's probably held up maybe the best. It's not one of the better remembered um, Redford-Sidney Pollock um, collaborations, but I should check it out. But that was their first working together in 1966, and then they would go on to do Jeremiah Johnson in 1972 and The Way We Were in 1973, which co-stars Barbara Streisand, and which was a massive hit. And over the course of their careers, they would work together seven times. So Sidney Pollack was very much Robert Redford's go-to collaborator. It certainly sounds like they had that uh, Saoirse Ronan, Joe Wright connection that we had back in Hannah as well. Yeah, or even the DiCaprio Scorsese thing, yeah. Mm. And De Niro Scorsese as well. And uh, it's it's interesting too that, um, you know, Sidney Pollack is someone who obviously comes out of the gate working with Redford a lot and a lot. And I mean, up until 1990, I think their last movie together was uh, Havana. I was going to say Hannah, a movie we covered previously, but Havana is the name of that film. And um, Robert Redford would go on to be a director on his own. You know, he would direct Ordinary People in 1980, as well as uh, he did The Horse Whisperer in 98. Um, I can't help but wonder how much of Redford's um, work as a director was influenced by all these collaborations with Sidney Pollack. There must have been something along the way, but it's interesting that you've mentioned two horse-related films in the last two minutes. I think we might be turning into horse hearts again. <laughs> That's right. Horse hearts are a spinoff podcast coming soon to a <laughs> podcast app near you. <laughs> Sidney Pollack, of course, we should note, would go on to be nominated for you know directing Oscars a few times. He would be nominated for Tootsie as well, which he directed with Dustin Hoffman. Um, He would end up winning two Oscars for producing and for directing Out of Africa um, in the 80s, the Meryl Streep film, um, also with Robert Redford. So there you have it. Robert Redford was the key to Oscar gold for Sidney Pollack. Hey, if you know what works for you, just keep going back to that well. I'm just curious, Scott, have you ever seen Out of Africa? Out of Africa? No, I can't say it's something I have heard of. It is one of the most tedious Oscar bait films I've ever watched. Like, I have, I you know, a handful of years ago went and watched every Best Picture nominee, and that was one of the toughest sits of them all. It's just not a movie I don't think that's held up well at all. But it's very picturesque. It's very beautiful landscapes. Is it a long film, or is it it's just nothing happens, basically? Oh, Scott, you don't win an Oscar in the 80s if your movie's not like three hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> that's not actually true but it is an oscar standby if you make a three-hour epic oh you you have a good shot it certainly sounds like something i would probably miss yeah yeah it's not one i'd highly recommend um but uh the writing on this film is really interesting because you have this james grady novel and they bring in another writer named lorenzo semple jr to flesh this out into a screenplay now lorenzo semple jr maybe doesn't jump out as a name that uh you know everyone knows off the you know off the bat i say david mamet a lot of people know who david mamet is or robert town or something but um lorenzo semple jr had a huge impact on my life scott maybe the biggest impact of any writer in the history of the medium he created in the 1960s the adam west batman show he wrote the pilot and was the creator of that show Oh, so is he one of those guys that got sort of uh, credited for the rest of the show because he set out the template of what it looked like? He did, as well as he also did write other episodes. He also wrote the 1966 Batman the movie, also starring Adam West. There's a connection for you. I know you're a, a big old Batman fan. You haven't brought out a Batman podcast yet, but we're all waiting for it. Bat Hard's coming soon. <laughs> And I don't want to just make it sound like Lorenzo Semple Jr. just wrote Condor and Batman. He had a, a pretty rich filmography. He wrote uh, Papillon, the Dustin Hoffman, Steve McQueen drama, which is really good. He wrote Parallax View with Warren Beatty. He wrote the 1976 disaster King Kong when they, for Dino De Laurentiis, actually the same producer as Condor. Um, and he also wrote, this is notable, Scott, Never Say Never Again, the Sean Connery unofficial James Bond film. My favorite unofficial James Bond film. I always stand by that film. <laughs> and fans of uh, you know movies like Crawl may also appreciate that Lorenzo Semple Jr. also wrote Flash Gordon, the 1980 film. I honestly thought you were going to say some sort of horse film, like he wrote um, uh, War Horse or you know Horse Girl or something like that, and just really tie it into our horse hard theme. Ah, uh, yes, that classic fan favorite, Horse Girl. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like Alison Brie. <laughs> Is that a movie? Actually, I never even heard of it. Oh, yeah, it's a it's a Netflix movie. Not that that should be a bad thing. I mean, they did have The Irishman, but yeah, it's a Netflix movie. Oh, okay. I wasn't actually familiar. I just thought you were trying to create like a name out of thin air. And I was like, <laughs> horse, horse girl. <laughs> <laughs> Scott's dream project. <laughs> I'm going to cast Alison Brie as a horse. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, something to check out, I guess, folks. <laughs> At a certain point, they did bring in another writer, David uh, Raphael, who has basically worked on every single Sidney Pollock movie. Uh, so he's very much um, Sidney Pollock's go-to guy. He worked on Jeremiah Johnson, The Way We Were. Um, he also worked on Sabrina, the remake with Harrison Ford, as well as The Firm with Tom Cruise, which Sidney Pollock also directed. Um, and so he's obviously his go-to guy and came in and his major job was to redefine the Kathy Hale character played by Faye Dunaway. Originally um, in the book, and I guess also the first screenplay, she was a kind of lonely secretary type. And he decided to make her more of a sophisticated photographer and give a little more sophistication to that character. I know we're going to get into sort of the film itself a little bit here, but I can see the roots of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. can definitely see the, the threads there that would between the two drafts it does exist on screen yeah and um you know this movie is notable because it was of several political conspiracy thrillers to appear in the wake of the watergate scandals and um you know this movie it was very much arriving at the right time and place and it was obviously a hit because of that the movie cost 7.8 million 
and made domestically 27 million, which this is still the era where it's very tough to track down any inter- international numbers, but it, at least in America, it did quite well. It uh, was number six, I believe, for the year, um, right between Return of the Pink Panther and Funny Lady, the sequel to Funny Girl, starring um, Robert Redford's co-star from The Way We Were, Barbara Streisand. Not a film I think I've seen. I've seen Funny Girl, which is actually really entertaining. I've heard Funny Lady is really bad, so I haven't watched it. Um, Not because it's necessarily bad. I'll watch bad movies. But it's like two and a half hours or something. So that is kind of the drawing line for me. Do you automatically dismiss all films over two hours and 25 minutes? Uh, No, but if they're considered really bad, that is more of a, oh, I don't know. Like I can... I can invest like 90 minutes to two hours for a bad movie, totally. But when you start getting to that two and a half, three hour mark, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, I That doesn't mean I won't do it. I've watched plenty of bad movies that are really long, but it, it's more. it takes time for me to get around to them. <laughs> it's the old sunken cost theory. Like, do you want to invest your time in something you know you're going to hate? Right. I am more likely to watch them if I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole of watching the various films from a director or an or an actor or something like that, then I'm more likely to kind of bend and watch something like that. But in terms of just grabbing out of thin air on a Saturday night, unlikely. What do you grab out of thin air on a Saturday night? A lot of old horror movies. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, yeah, a lot of old... I, I tend to go to old horror movies or... Um, well, I kind of do, lately I've been doing a lot of westerns, I guess, old westerns with like Jimmy Stewart. Okay. Um, do you yeah. have anything else for us on the film? Yeah. So um, just a, a, some notes on the year that was 1975 on the box office. The number one movie was Steven Spielberg's Jaws, which pretty much changed the way that films are released. Jaws was a movie that they decided to just go wide and open it in every theater that was available at once instead of doing the classic platform release where they open a movie, you know, in a couple cities and then build from there with buzz. Uh, Jaws opened everywhere. It was a massive hit and movies were never the same. Isn't sort of Jaws where the term blockbuster came from more or less? Yeah. I mean, there'd been blockbusters, I guess in the past, a movie like psycho, for example, in 1960, it would have long lines because people would be waiting to get in. It's more about, I guess, just the long lines to get into a movie. But the thing was Jaws very much created the event movie. Um, Event movies existed in the past, but they happened more by accident. They weren't intended going forward. Event movies would be something that the studios were trying to engineer, you know, these big summer movies. That makes sense. I mean, did we have multiplexes as they're referred to as by that point, or were we still in mostly, you know, single room cinemas? Yeah, we're still in single rooms. Yeah. Right. Okay. That explains the lines. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, Jaws is number one. Number two is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, which like swept the Oscars that year with Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Picture, Best Director. Um, And then at number three, we have Shampoo starring Warren Beatty. And I have a little X mark here because another movie on this list that I think if you were to look at its, you know, cumulative gross may actually rank in the top three is Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was not a big hit the year it came out. But I feel like if you were to add up all the grosses on that movie, it probably knocks out shampoo, right? It has to. I mean, this is pre-COVID, but it plays at least three cinemas I know of every Friday night here in London. And that's London. Yeah, exactly. Like there's revival screenings constantly for like however many years that is, like 40 something years, 45 Mm. years. 
I have a hard time believing it hasn't knocked out Shampoo. Shampoo is a movie that I haven't seen. I've heard it's actually really worth watching, but it maybe hasn't held up in the public eye the same way that Jaws and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest have. Whenever I think of shampoo, I always get confused with hairspray. You know what? So do I, actually. Um, shampoo is with Warren Beatty as a, I think, Hollywood hairdresser or something like that. You can see we both get confused with that one. But I mean, no one goes to uh, shampoo revivals in a corset and stockings. Well, not most people, but <laughs> me. <laughs> That's actually my Saturday night. <laughs> it's just by yourself, just like selling tickets to your own house, basically. That's all right. Um, and just two other movies I'll note on the uh, highest grocers that year. Um, down lower on the list, like around number 19. Um, again, it's very hard to gauge exact numbers when you're talking about the pre-1977 box office. But um, at number 19, we had The Great Waldo Pepper, which was another Robert Redford vehicle. I haven't seen it, but um, it's, I think, quite notable. So Robert Redford did quite well this year. Also uh, opening this year, probably around the Great Waldo Pepper numbers. Again, tough to track down an exact one. The Man Who Would Be King, which is notable for starring Sean Connery. And Michael Caine, which was a big adventure kind of epic and really great movie. That's the uh, Sean Connery Bond and Harry Palmer Imp Chris File smash uh, Avengers style film that we all wanted. That's right. Back in the day before Cap and Iron Man, we had Caine and Connery. <laughs> what more could you want? That's right. So yeah, that kind of wraps up the behind the scenes on Three Days of the Condor for me. Um, I guess uh, I'll toss it over to you, Scott. Okay, Cam, from my extensive background in telephonics work, I think our guest is ready to join us. So, Scott, we have a very special guest this time. Joining us, the co-host of the Subspace Transmissions podcast, which I co-host with him, Tyler Orton. Hey, great to be here. I am coming in through my Get Smart phone booth that has a trapdoor that leads me to the secret lair, the secret studio that you guys record. From one podcast booth to another. <laughs> <laughs> are you guys both wearing a cone of silence or did i just come here looking like a dork uh no we have one pretty much through every day of our lives okay okay so i can't wait to talk to you guys about get smart i, I watched it like three times leading up to uh today's <laughs> podcast yeah that pilot it's a real zinger <laughs> <laughs> well i mean cam are you telling me you uh you brought a friend to the meeting so i would feel comfortable that's that's correct yes yeah okay <laughs> That didn't end well in this film, but... Uh... <laughs> so Tyler, why don't you just take a second, tell everyone what the Subspace Transmissions podcast is. Well, uh, Cam, it's you and I. We've been doing this for, what, five or six years now, and I think we take a really irreverent look at Star Trek. It's not that very academic, because you and I, we are clearly not academics, but it's not that academic study that's it can sometimes be a little bit dry. You and I, we've done things like best musical moments, you know, biggest what the F moments as well on the show we're doing a lot of episode reviews for the series right now we're doing star trek lower decks and we're looking forward to star trek discovery but i think we're willing to kind of uh, make fun of the series while still uh, bask in all the glory that this franchise has to offer that's right a lot of hilarity and a lot of insight i like to think <laughs> that was funny that's the kind of hilarity you other listeners can expect too <laughs> Okay, now Scott, what are we going to be doing now? Well, you, you've asked the question I always ask, so uh, hey, I'll just be you this week. Uh, this week, yeah. we're looking at the Three Days of the Condor, the Robert Redford film. Um, I'm going to throw it over to our guests, Tyler. What did you think? 
I love this, guys. Okay, uh, you can debate the knock list uh, when you get to the end, but I'm, I'm like, this is like 1970s cinema the way that I always romanticize it. I cannot believe I've never actually seen this movie. Uh, it, Robert Redford is playing, uh, what, uh, analyst Joe Turner, or as I kept calling him in my head, you know, uh, Jack Reacher for some reason. It seemed as if it was kind of the, uh, the Tom Clancy Genesis story uh, going on, but uh, that was my initial take of uh, Three Days of the Condor. Very good. And Scott, what about you? Uh, I had no knowledge of this film prior to us coming up with it for the podcast, but I thoroughly enjoyed it on my second watch. On my first watch, I was supremely confused. (laughs) You were like in Ipcris land uh, all over again. (laughs) At least in Ipcris, I knew what was going on and I didn't like it. And this film, I liked it, but I didn't know what was going on. Um, it's funny because this movie, I was positive I'd seen it. When I put it on the list of movies for us to cover, I was like, oh yeah, of course, Three Days of the Condor, it's great, I've seen it. And then I went through my archives of where I look at, you know, what I've thought of movies in the past, I keep it on my computer, and I realized I'd never seen it. And I think I was just confused because maybe the movie Spy Game came out with, you know, Robert Redford and Brad Pitt, and a lot of the reviews talked about connections to Three Days of the Condor, and I thought, I need to see that movie. And apparently in my mind, I did see it, but I never actually you know, physically saw it. So diving into it this time, I was very excited uh, because it's like a 70s gem that I just for some reason had bypassed. And I thought it was a real like just like hoot wait, wait, <laughs> to watch. You bypassed it or spy passed it? Oh, good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Comedy gold on subspace transmissions like this, listeners. <laughs> Look forward to it. <laughs> Carrying that branding right over to Spyhards. <laughs> Just close this podcast down now. Go over there and listen to them instead because it's clearly better. <laughs> but I was like really just riveted throughout this. I am really finding myself drawn to these mundane spy worlds, kind of like Ipcris file, where everything's just a little bit, you know, working class kind of look to it, a little bit ramshackle, but there's all this intrigue going on underneath. And I loved all of the, you know, cat and mouse stuff throughout this movie. So yeah, I was really down with it. But it, it does not depend on like Michael Bay editing. It's like long shot, shots. It, it's kind of slowly moving. I, there's even just moments where he recreates the crime scene using like a pen and notepad, which they would just never dare to do in a lot of these contemporary spy genre films. Like, could you, could you imagine that Ryan Reynolds movie uh, uh, doing something like with a notepad for like four minutes? What, Deadpool? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's breaking the fourth wall right there. Uh, you, you got me. <laughs> now, what was that uh, underground? Is it Underground Six? I, I could not finish that one. Yeah, I was confused whether you're talking about Six Underground or I was also thinking of Safe House, the other Ryan Reynolds uh, spy film. I, I Again, another one that I've skipped. Yeah, uh, good choice. But um, no, I agree. Like, I like kind of the lo-fi approach to spycraft we're seeing in some of these older spy movies. Obviously, they didn't really have an option. Um, because uh, honestly, like writing on a pen and paper ages better than some of the computer stuff in these movies. Uh, do that also ages well? Um fight scenes that are actually well choreographed in which you actually know Mm -hmm. what the mailman is doing. There's actually kind of a storyline going on as it escalates and escalates and they grab like other weapons to fight each other. I was not confused for a single moment watching this 1970s movie, which I would not call it an action movie, but this action sequence within it, I I was just kind of sucked into everything that was going on there. And that's the trick, isn't it? You can actually see the fight scene, unlike Ipquist file. We're not looking for a phone box this time. (laughs) 
That's cold, Scott. No that one's getting pushed down the stairs as the like coup de grace of the fight. Oh, <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed that fight as well in the uh, the uh, apartment or whatever. Um, I like that the mailman assassin did not look in any way like a physical specimen, like some of the born assassins. And yet the fight was intense and these guys just never stopped going at each other. And it was like a game of like chess, basically of who could get the gun and finding all these different techniques to keep the gun away. I think there's a reason this movie got an Oscar nomination for editing. Did you give it to them? <laughs> no, just a nomination, oh, unfortunately. Okay. But I, you're right. I would give them the Oscar for it. Although I think the Oscar probably went to Jaws. So, uh, <laughs> well, actually, I got to go backwards on that one. Actually, sorry. <laughs> okay. No, I, I get it. Um, guys, even just the atmosphere of this. Like, I, I'm listening to even just the the soundtrack. It, it seems a little dated because it is very 70s. But that actually put me in the mood for this kind of movie as well. Dated. That's the music I listen to every morning. Your Spotify <laughs> recommendations is just like 70s porn jazz. <laughs> it's also his uh, nickname in high school. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, no, I agree with you. Like the tone was set effectively immediately with just that music and the shots of New York. Although I was surprised, you know, this is 1975. New York uh, looked a lot nicer than a lot of the other movies shot in the 70s in New York. Yeah, like how much of this was shot in New York? Like, like I'm curious because it is also just kind of uh, throws you for a loop when you see, say, the World Trade Center filmed, you know, uh, so prominently. But there's also like moments where they're in like Washington D.C. It, it really did kind of put you in the the moment. Versus, uh, let's be honest, like, there's some spy movies that uh, they're pretending to be New York or London, where if you look closely, it's like Vancouver or Toronto, and you don't quite get the same atmosphere built out of that. I'm sure Cam can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been to New York several times and I actually recognize places from New York that they were standing. So I would actually put money on that they filmed it all there. Yeah, I just looked at IMDb. All the shooting locations were pretty much New York. Okay. So Scott, was that favorite location of yours? Was it like Sparrow's, the the, uh, pizza chain? No, I just hung around outside the New York Post all the time. Mm. (laughs) Waiting to fight mailmen? (laughs) (laughs) waiting he was just fighting them (laughs) i was thinking though scott at some point you and i should just start globe hopping and doing extensive tours of all of the locations of these movies starting with the ipcris file just reenacting fight scenes across the world oh my god yes (laughs) you guys have made some progress at least with some of the james bond flicks though with uh, getting photos together it's true that's true yeah and we will talk about that movie in the future with you tyler yeah can't wait (laughs) (laughs) be there in the background that's right (laughs) unacknowledged (laughs) oh that's my life when it comes to uh three uh, third wheeling it with you guys that story will make a lot more sense listeners when we tackle diamonds are forever (laughs) that's what i'm here to not make sense but to bring it back to tyler's point in terms of the atmosphere it flows throughout this film the soundtrack is great and you feel like you're in that um that gritty 70s New York. Everything just feels right. Yeah, like I just immediately was impressed and a little bit sad about how effectively this movie set its tone because you think of so many movies nowadays. And, you know, Tyler, you kind of hit on a key point there where they show, you know, an establishing shot of New York and then it's immediately shot in Georgia or Montreal or something. And you don't get that same atmosphere that's conveyed as quickly as you do in a movie like this where... 
I didn't have to spend any time getting into the mindset of the atmosphere. That happened immediately. So I could just get involved with the characters. Uh, even just moments where the, okay, you've got the rain pouring down at the start of the movie, uh, that's building the atmosphere, but you also just, you know that you're in for a good ride when the script is being clever right from the get-go. Just even the way that Robert Redford's uh, Joe Turner character has to get out of this kind of uh, sort of front that they're working out of, it was clever because the security guard is like, no, no, you can't go that way. He's like, ah, whatever, I'm going to go at the back exits. And you're like, oh, the screenwriters are actually thinking this through, making it plausible. Whereas a lot of the contemporary movies, they would just they wouldn't even give it a second thought about how Joe Turner escaped from this entire situation. Could you also imagine a movie being made nowadays where the character of Joe Turner is like this, like a guy who's just kind of a reader? He's not a particularly, um, you know, uh, he's not someone who's dying to be in the field. He's introduced on a moped, wearing a toque and looking really hipstery. Well, like he's yeah. he's definitely not someone who comes across as the way they would write this, you know, like a spy on the run now. Wait until they hire Timothy Chalamet to take over the next Jack Reacher movie. Like that that franchise has been reinvented and you find as if you're kind of following the same arc with Jack Reacher every single uh, movie though, where it's like he's the bookish guy who's thrust into the, uh, the, the sort of um, machinations of these worlds and he's got to turn action hero by the end. Mm-hmm. Just to throw it back for a second, what's a toque? Oh, oh, the hat he's like wearing. A, yeah, like a beanie. I, I guess uh, Americans and the like would call it a beanie. Uh, sorry, I'm just filling in the gaps for the rest of the world, guys. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, speaking of the, the opening with uh, Robert Redford on the electric bicycle, which I found completely bizarre, just like laughing at cars coming past me, it, it definitely establishes him as a quirky guy. Yes, and I mean... I do love the idea of 1975 Robert Redford being the bookish quirky guy, <laughs> the <laughs> ultimate like matinee movie star. <laughs> Would it be like uh, or, uh, Ben Affleck starring in The Accountant? Ooh, well, yeah, you know what? That's pretty close. Although they give The Accountant kind of more badass things, more badass traits. Like he is an assassin. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, though, of someone who's like, it's like, this is a character who would be like a Timothy Chalamet casting choice if you were to write like a bookish analyst character now. But instead they put Alden Ehrenreich in the role, right? <laughs> That's, God, no, please no. Okay, no, I'm just thinking it's like, I, I don't know. It, remember, um, you know, uh, 10 things I, oh no, uh, she's all that. And, and essentially like Rachel Lee Cook is walking around in glasses and everyone thinks she's like a total uggo. But as soon as they take glasses off, oh they realize that person's hot. It's kind of like trying to make Robert Redford look uncool. The entire time, he looks pretty damn cool. He is. And this is one of, I think, his one of his best I've seen movie star performances of this era, where it's a very, in many ways, uh, nondescript character, and he doesn't get big scenes of reactions and everything, but he feels so just human. And a lot of the time, he feels like he's a little outside of us, you know, mere mortals in his films. And I was totally on board with his, you know, basically being on the run because you could really read all of the moments of apprehension and excitement and tension on his face throughout. It was, it was a very open performance. And just to go back to that sort of opening as well, it's his quirkiness that actually saves his life in the beginning. Because if he hadn't gone out the back gate, if he hadn't been, you know overly capable for his job that he knows exactly what time to leave and when the when the weather stops you know he, he's that weird he goes out the back door and doesn't get assassinated and that just sort of propels us through the rest of the film 
he has these weird set of skills that have get him or keep him alive, I should say. Assassination skills. <laughs> he well, he wishes. I yeah. just like, or maybe no, he doesn't but, wish. But it's even interesting that like he's just he's got the gun and he's a bad shot, so he's not able to do this assassination technique. And the CIA bigwigs kind of comment on it. They're like, How is this kind of bookworm learning how to shoot a guy directly in the neck? Yeah, and the fact that there's that sequence where they try to take him out and he does shoot the guy down and they're like, how did this happen? And it's like, must have been a fluke. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking about Faye Dunaway's uh, character as well, because you are kind of giving her kind of the thankless 1970s uh, co-star sort of job here in what she's like the helpless woman. She's literally like in shackles at uh, various points of this movie. I think it benefits a lot from just Faye Dunaway as an actress, actually like kind of bringing some life into this character. And I'm just incredibly jealous of that uh, New York apartment that she gets to live in too. Yeah, those are the days where if you had a you know relatively meager job, you could have a palatial estate in New York. I, I couldn't figure out where I knew uh, Faye Dunaway from for a little while when I was watching the film. It turns out it was Network. That's the only other thing of hers I think I've seen her in, which is a great film. I thought you were going to say Supergirl too. I have no witty response for that. I've never seen that film and I never will. <laughs> well, one day, Scott, for a uh, Supergirl she play, heart. Is uh, Kara in that one or is it? Because uh, I, I have seen that. I just I think I've mostly um, blanked it from my memory. Uh, she's the villain in that. I don't remember the character's name. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I mean, she's also in Chinatown, which is the other big right. movie. I mean, Faye Dunaway was a huge deal in the 70s, which I feel is lost on a lot of modern viewers who maybe don't know her that well. But in the 1970s, like Faye Dunaway was top tier. They also gave her like good like lines, like her dialogue did not suck in this. I, I mean, I, I would I would write little notes down and she would say, what, a, a volunteer or a draftee like me? Or even just kind of uh, being very derisive of after, you know, she and Robert Redford consummated the relationship. Um, she was just like, I don't know, always depend on the old spy effer, you know, like that sort of stuff. I'm just like, oh, they're actually like kind of imbuing this character with actual characterizations just in the way that they uh, let her speak freely as opposed to just kind of blank exposition that often faces a lot of these characters. Spy effers was almost our name for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And don't think when that, (laughs) well, we're still undecided. Uh, And don't think when that line popped up, that wasn't my immediate thought to write a note down about that joke. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like that character, we've seen a similar character with Franca Patente's character in The Born Identity. And the similarities between the two actually jumped out at me quite a bit. But you're right. Like this could have been a very eye-rolling character. I mean, let's face it. There's still some eye-rolling stuff going on here. Um the relationship being consummated stuff you're like okay like that, that was kind of I, embarrassing I, to watch i was in like this super romantic looking like the way that they lit it the way that they edited it and filmed it it just makes me think of that dave attell joke the stand-up comedian and he's just like telling kids why don't you go to the zoo and see how monkeys do it and that's how it actually should be shot in movies yeah i mean it's asking us to um <laughs> to uh, put up with a lot to get to that consummation scene where you're like, uh, he's had this woman like held hostage for like, what, like three hours, four hours. <laughs> this seems very quickly. And I think a lot of it is hugely dependent on the fact it's Robert Redford. Oh yeah. I, I have it written down in my notes. It's a Kathy equals classic Stockholm syndrome. Right. How? Yeah. On, I mean, 
if you're captured by someone, but I know you're right, Cam. If it wasn't Robert Redford, if it was, you know, you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or, or me, or me. I think it would have been a completely different story. But, you know, she's definitely a, a, a Stockholm Syndrome case. And that sex scene where they're like, Cutting in, you know, the, those those photos she's been taking. They're like splicing that in with the the jazz porn music again, and it's it's all really weirdly put together. That scene. I feel like the photo montage, the back and forth, is to kind of show this character who's an observer all her life, and this is a moment of experience. And so it's kind of like the life before and the life after. Is the CIA trying to recruit her after this movie? Hmm. We need to save our oil fields. You're the only one that can help us, Faye Dunaway. <laughs> take some photos please <laughs> make sure they're black and white otherwise how will you know it's oil <laughs> oh nice <laughs> oh what did you think of like did you were you happy with the resolution to that character in the film with her uh, going off to vermont i i mean what else do you do with a character where it, it's robert redford he is the white male lead in a 1970s movie i guess they did the best they could with, with faye dunaway's exit but it's I, I maybe my expectations are just so low i i guess i could just go sure okay i think though a different movie they would have had some sort of happily ever after and i like that she has that bit of dialogue to him about i know you're not going to live that long or something like that and you get that final shot of you know just being frozen black and white of him in the streets and there's some ambiguity like he may get killed you know 2 minutes later like we don't know like i think a movie nowadays you would have had that born identity ending where she's selling like i don't know soaps on the seashore and he comes along on his moped um okay <laughs> uh Sure. Um, I was not a huge fan of, of that particular born identity conclusion because it, it, it felt, again, a little bit too romanticized to me. And maybe this one, just that clinical nature and what's realistic, maybe I can buy that these two aren't, you know, uh, lovers meant for the ages or something like that. Well, I mean, was the was the guy in Vermont actually a partner of hers? I know she was meeting him, but was she ever did she ever really say specifically that, you know, that's my partner? She kept saying like friend, right? Yeah. She's just not that into him. Yeah, <laughs> he's not a he's not a spy. That's right. He's not Robert Redford, <laughs> or a Cam Smith. Oh, sure, <laughs> I got the sense though that the scene of the two of them on the phone, her and the guy in Vermont on the phone, in his mind, it's a relationship. I don't know if that's the case with her though. Yeah, I, I think she might be stringing him along a little bit. Right. Yeah. I mean, she's certainly not as excited by him than she is by Robert Redford. I mean, she does a lot for this guy that uh, that starts by capturing her. Vermont guy needs to flip his collar just like Robert Redford did throughout this entire movie. That looked pretty badass. <laughs> now, the book for this um, that this film was based on was called Six Days of the Condor. And I'm wondering if the Faye Dunaway story would feel different if it wasn't condensed to three days like in the film. Like if she'd spent six days with him, would we have bought more of the evolution of this relationship? Well, I think it's very clear that they chopped it in half because they wanted to set it up for a sequel. So that's why it was only three days. And so uh, she was going to appear quite prominently in <laughs> another three days of the Condor, which just never came to fruition. Well, the second one was going to be all in Vermont and lots of big ski chases. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, just like that last James Bond movie, uh, Spectre. That's right. Nothing but skiing all the time. Robert Redford and his stunt double going down slalom shoots and all that sort of thing. And a lot of tasty smoothies at a ski lodge. 
And also a scene where the uh, CIA head ups are like, I don't understand. This man's a reader. How does he ski so well? And they're like, <laughs> he reads about skiing. <laughs> Speaking of like uh, cool characters, uh, I'll say Slorraine. Uh, I-, I love Max von Sydow as like the guy was just kind of a, a-, a contractor. And he didn't have to be like that cutthroat villain all the way through, even though I think he's a totally cutthroat sort of character all the way through. I love old academic hitman. <laughs> like that is a trope that's popped up in a handful of movies uh, I've seen. And every time it works, especially when you have an actor with the gravitas of, Mox, of Max von Sydow, who all he has to do is just walk on the scene, say a few words. And I'm like, I believe everything this man is telling me. And I entirely buy this character 100%. Who do you think would be like a good actor to take on that role like right now in a contemporary movie? Oh, excellent question. Scott, do you have any suggestions? I'm just rummaging through my brain. Like, is the default like automatically Michael Caine or I don't know. Like, I I just watched um, Sexy Beast and I'm just wondering if you can get somebody like uh, Ben Kingsley in that role. Or is it just too obvious that Ben Kingsley is kind of that um, thinker that could kill you with his fingers? I mean, I'm not against going too obvious, too on the nose. I don't know that Max von Sydow was an outside-the-box casting choice. I'm wondering, too, you know, if you cast, not now, it's a, he's a little too old now, but if you go back, say, 15 years or 20 years and cast uh, Morgan Freeman in that role, it would be very effective as well. Uh, is he driving uh, Miss Daisy the entire movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has to keep pulling over and be like, hold on, Miss Daisy, I'll be right back. <laughs> And he comes in with like blood all over his hands every single time. He's just wiping it off on his chauffeur outfit. And she's like, what happened? He's like, don't ask. <laughs> It'd be great if the, the entire premise of the movie is he has to train her to be the next assassin. Oh my God. There's your three day, another three days of the condor. Training Miss Daisy. <laughs> That's right. I think I prefer three more days of the Condor, but that's uh, alternate titles for you. But I'm glad we got to Max von Sydow because I mentioned earlier on that this film confused the hell out of me the first time I watched it. Okay. And his character... Go on. No, I'm curious. Like, I, I don't think it's one of those movies where you have to obsess about plot point by plot point. I think they just want you to kind of go with it. And it'll kind of unfold on its own because like by the time you get to the end of it, where you literally have Robert Redford saying, you know, like you play games, I told them a story. I get what his ultimate goal was. I get his motivation throughout all this. His motivation is to survive. I understand what the antagonist motivations are. So even if some of the plot points were a little murky, I I didn't get too hung up on that myself. I actually found for a lot of the movie, I was like, oh, this is actually really straightforward, way more straightforward than I was expecting. And then there was a point, though, yeah, Scott, where it got to that maybe hour 20 mark or something like that. And I was suddenly like, wait, what's going on? (laughs) And um, basically, when it was over, I had my interpretation in my head and I read up on Wikipedia and it seems like I was mostly right. Um, But you are right. Like, it comes across initially as fairly simple, but the... um, dueling allegiances of Max von Sydow do make things a little bit confusing. Yeah, that's one of the two things that threw me off. Now, it was my second viewing that sort of uh, clarified the situation with Max von Sydow. Obviously, he was hired by a higher up in the company. So uh, Joseph Turner was not the target anymore, which is why he wasn't shot at the end. Spoilers. Mm -hmm. 
But um, the other bit, I'm just going to throw us off on a tangent for a second. Do you remember when um, Robert Redford's character turned up at the house of his friend, Sam? Oh, uh, yeah. The wife is cooking dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Why did he go there? And when did they make plans to have dinner? Because I've watched it twice and I still can't figure that out. Wasn't he on the phone with her earlier in the movie? Was that it? Huh. I'm not 100% sure, to be honest with you. I mean, I just went with it. And you can kind of go, oh, okay, maybe they had plans. And they don't have to tell you, obviously. They don't have to show you everything. But I just thought, yeah. why? Yeah, he's on the run. And his friend has already been shot. And, and you know, an assassination attempt on him has been attempted, I should say. But um, I just didn't understand the whole need for that scene and then sending her upstairs. But then we get the cool scene of Max von Sydow and him in the in the lift together. I'm willing to go on that journey because I actually thought the scene between Redford and the... Um, the I guess widow. Um, it was like a very effective scene um, of him trying to get her out of the situation without basically telling her what's happened, um, and so it gave us a lot out of the Redford character. But you're right; that scene in the elevator was incredibly tense, and I was reminded actually. I remember when they um, were releasing Captain America: Winter Soldier. They talked about how their biggest inspirations for that film were movies like Three Days of the Condor and Parallax View. And I couldn't help but wonder if the Captain America in the elevator with Hydra scene was somewhat of a nod to the scene with Sidow and Redford in the elevator. Oh, you have a Red Skull making it another appearance, right? Redford Skull, yeah. Redford Skull, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That joke is almost right because Robert Redford in initial draft was going to be the Red Skull. I was kind of bummed out so. that he never, he was just what, the, the senator at the end of it all? Yeah, or was he just the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., right? I think Ale- uh, Alexander Pierce, I think. Oh, right, yeah. right. It's uh, Gary Shandling was the uh, the evil senator throughout this. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I kind of appreciated that scene. Obviously, this is not um, Robert Redford taking down like six guys with a S.H.I.E.L.D. in an elevator, but it has that same sort of tension where they're trying to play friendly. They're trying to be cordial to one another, but it's all just a mask for basically two guys who are a second away from, you know, pulling a gun on each other or taking a swing at each other well no if i have to be honest if i'm in that same elevator situation i would feel socially obliged to leave first if the guys kept insisting no you go first i'd be like no you go first and then i would finally just relent even though i i would be convinced he's going to shoot me in the back it would just be too awkward to kind of fight him on it yeah um I might hold out. I don't know. I would be so worried about getting shot in the back of the head by Max von Sydow. He's just, he's got that icy, cool demeanor. Uh, I don't know if I can trust him. I, it, For me, all I was going to say is it just goes to show that you don't need to have a massive fight scene. I say massive, it was inside of a lift uh, to have the same sort of effect. They barely, they barely exchange words and you're just super tense for those two, three minutes. And on top of that, you have that amazing moment where Max von Sydow holds out that glove and he's like, is this your glove? And Redford's like, no, it's actually not. And I'm like, oh my God, is it his glove? Like there's actual <laughs> tension involved whether this is is or is not Robert Redford's glove. So what do you guys think it is though? Like, do you think that uh, contemporary movie audiences just would not be able to sit through or appreciate kind of these long drawn out tense scenes? Or does it all it take is just getting people into the movies, getting them to watch this and then they would appreciate it? Because I, I just wish more of this sort of, you know, filmmaking was prevalent in modern day cinema. Well, I think it's honestly more of the studio and filmmakers being too scared to conduct a sequence like this 
for fear of boring an audience if it mm-hmm. doesn't work. And I mean, you know, think of a movie like um, A Quiet Place, the horror film, uh, the John Krasinski directed film. I mean, that movie is these extended, quiet, tense set pieces. Yes, it does have some big kind of Jurassic Parky raptor type stuff, but a lot of it is built on tension and audiences loved it. Like they ate it up in droves. And so I think if you if it works and you can get an audience in, they'll love it. But I think it's um, I don't know that the filmmakers are often that confident that an audience will want these sequences or that they won't get bored. It's like that. Keep hitting them with information so they don't get bored. All gas, no brakes. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Tyler referenced um, Six Underground earlier. And I mean, there's a movie uh, that uh, there's not a single second of breath, basically. And a, a movie like this so much of it is is based on Robert Redford observing and taking in sort of the lay of the land and figuring out a strategy on how to proceed and getting out of situations, not through a fight, although there are a couple fights, but mostly just through outsmarting his opponents. Uh, Yeah. Scott, for the international listeners, when you say all gas, no brakes, what do you mean by gas? Oh, I was using an Americanism. I meant petrol. Oh, there you go. Just want to make sure those (laughs) international listeners are not confused. All, All petrol, no slowdown. That's what we call the uh, the brake pedal, the slowdown. Yeah, and then uh, the trunk of the car is the is the booty. Yes, you, you always say that car has a big old booty. That's what I thought. Okay. Oh <laughs> wow! But I think you have to give a lot of credit to Sidney Pollock, who like Sidney Pollock is not a director at this point in time whose name you hear brought up a lot in terms of the great film directors of the seventies and eighties. He's someone who's considered a very capable studio craftsman. But, you know, he's obviously not getting his name thrown in with the Scorseses or the Coppolas, the De Palmas and various other directors like that of that era. But, I mean, I've seen a few of Sidney Pollock's films of this era, and he does have this very patient, laid back approach to his stories that I think when it works, it really, really sucks you in. I mean, Jeremiah Johnson, which he did with Robert Redford, is basically the 1970s version of The Revenant, and I think is much better than The Revenant. I mean, ultimately, you don't want to see a character like Joe Turner beat the crap out of Max von Sydow in that lift. If it was Jason Bourne, you'd be screaming at the guy to you know punch him and run off, but they've built him up to be a character that has almost no physicality to him. He's all, he's all smarts. Right, and he also has a little bit of that air of kind of the gentleman assassin. He's not a guy you're suddenly getting get into like a fist fight with. He has this sort of dignified stately manner about him he feels like more of someone you have to outthink as opposed to you know beat with a magazine i think what he was missing though is one of those kind of tubes where you uh spit out poison darts at people that would have been kind of the perfect assassin tool for this movie well that's the thing and you know if this movie were made now they would give him a much more gimmicky method of killing for example or a weapon that's really gimmicky or something something that makes him stand out as uh, you know unusual I'm always down for any umbrella-related weapons for spy movies. (laughs) I was actually kind of surprised when um, we had the scene of Robert Redford leaving that um, apartment complex, and he, you know, pays those that group of kids like five bucks to walk with him, and you have Sid out out there with a sniper rifle. I was actually kind of surprised it was Sid out with the sniper rifle. He seemed more like someone who would be commanding someone else to do it, maybe in that moment. Yeah, no, that was kind of uh, I, that. Actually, that moment did pop out to me as well. Like it, it, it just—it's one of those things where we keep going back to it, but it just kind of adds to the tenseness and the atmosphere within it all. Like you really do believe that 
you know, Robert Redford is maybe the luckiest guy in the world and just how he's able to maneuver out of these situations sometimes without his own knowledge about how he's doing so. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what did you think of Robert Redford's special skill, which was telephone science? Uh, well, I, here's the issue. I studied uh, telephone science back in school, and I, I, it was based on my love of this movie. Um, I'm telling you guys, it does not make you as much money as you would think. You're not going to get a CIA <laughs> job straight out of school, uh, you know, in, in this era. <laughs> I did love how they set it all up and that he was with the Signal Corps and had all of this background in communication systems. And then we get an extended sequence of him patching phone lines together. And I'm like, this is so I mean, this makes no sense to probably like an 18 year old now watching this movie who doesn't even know what these like rotary phones are. But I'm like just hypnotized by it because it's something I, I don't think I've ever seen this in a movie where it's a character doing this sort of tech job on telephones, but the movie like conveying it in a very like methodical like way. Well, there's other stuff though that did kind of pull me out of it. Like when they're at the CIA uh, sort of headquarters and there's that giant machine uh, when they're trying to trace the phone call and the light turns from tracing to complete trace and i'm just like um it, it really looked like i was watching some sort of like 1970s game show uh, sort of set at that moment i actually made a note about that and i was like is that a thing like did these machines exist i don't think they did i uh, yeah there's also the computer screen at one point that was like showing video and i was like uh, I, don't, I don't know about that i mean the only, the only thing i bumped on if we're, we're talking about criticisms of the film and i think we've encountered this before cam with some films is you know, Robert Redford, as we've said, is a, a book smart, quirky guy who likes to read. It likes to ride an e-bike. Okay, but he seems to be the most capable agent that the entire CIA has at their disposal. And there's and only that one. I, I find bizarre. Maybe the ones you know, because he's obviously working out of what is it, the American uh, Historical Literary Society or something like that, and all of his coworkers are killed. Maybe they were all way more com uh, like competent than him. Maybe he's the least competent of the group. And yet they all That's died. why he went to get lunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, <laughs> they sent him for lunch. He was the one at the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> He's just interning there. <laughs> Making copies, you know, fetching lunches. Yeah. That's why he's late every day. He's just not happy with it. Yeah. <laughs> one of those unpaid internships. That's right. I mean, this is kind of a trope of the genre, though, where the, the agent who has no real reputation or... You know, they don't really know who he is. Turns out to be the only guy capable of outthinking them. And there's always that scene of the superiors going, who is this man? And then they pull up a file and read it out. And it's a shock to them all. Well, I, I think it is a trope because audiences would like to project themselves into that role and think that they're capable of such feats if push came to shove. And, you know, uh, why not me if uh, they were trying to assassinate me at some point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... I know my telephone science. I could do that, right? Um, mashing your fingers against your uh, BlackBerry uh, cam. Just it, It's not quite the telephone science I studied. They keep <laughs> contacting me to see if I want to buy a dialing wand. <laughs> BlackBerry? What are you guys using over in Canada? Cam's all about the tactile uh, buttons at this point still. <laughs> That's right. The BlackBerry. It's the latest thing on the market in my world. Well, I mean, to be fair, I, I will, I will uh, fight my own point. Is that you could say that Max von Sydow's character is actually a better agent than Robert Redford. He, he does outsmart him at the end. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. I think Max von Sydow 
is the old pro. And yeah. I think, I mean, he's he's basically trying to appeal to Redford to, hey, just come to my side. It's a pretty good gig. And I think the thing is, like, Robert Redford is, you know, getting to the point where he would be recognized by Yvonne Sidow, but Von Sidow is working on a whole other level and doesn't have the idealism or even the, like, you know, this desperate need to survive. I think uh, Max Von Sydow is fairly comfortable this entire movie. He's not the one on the edge. What exactly was he doing 30 years ago during uh, Second World War? Like, Nazi recruitment? Was that it? Possibly. Because yeah, I mean... He was from Alsace-Lorraine, um, which was always kind of the disputed territory between France and Germany. I just... Um, you're hiring a guy like that. And also, like, the CIA hired a lot of ex-Nazis, like... Uh, just because that's who were the experts after the second world war in Germany. And you're trying to fight this kind of um, cold war at that time. So I, I just, I I'm intrigued by whatever his backstory is as well. Well, and he talks about how, you know, you can basically just be content knowing both sides don't matter. And so it wouldn't shock me if he was a Nazi. It's almost a little bit of that Hans Landa uh, from inglorious bastards kind of attitude of like, being more of an opportunist or just willing to kind of cash in on either side and not getting morally affected by either one. Uh, I personally would be morally affected, but I don't know about you guys. Well, I think the point is, though, that these guys wouldn't. That's why they're so effective at their jobs of being these stone-cold killers. They, they certainly remind me of that uh, that sort of cabal of uh, office workers from North by Northwest nameless people who just sit in the office, you know, orchestrating everyone's destruction. Yeah. And I mean, you get a real look inside that world in this movie. I really appreciated the world building where it would just kind of cut to this weird control room of this guy in a wheelchair working at a desk, taking phone calls. And then you get like the room with all the superiors. And even though it wasn't like elaborate James Bondy and art direction, each scene really did set kind of this tone for this secret world operating just outside of our, you know, purview. All right, guys, before we get to the, the ultimate question of this podcast, is there any final thoughts you guys have of the film? Obviously, guest first. So, Tyler, take it away. Yeah, I'm just, I, I was sucked in uh, early on. Uh, just even like simple shots, establishing shots outside of the, uh, the front that they're working at. And the movie just didn't let me go. Like, I, I think that this is like just exquisite filmmaking. I, I wish like more filmmakers would be daring enough to just slow it down and have enough faith in the audience that they can just go with it. And you're creating like these gripping, tense scenes all throughout. Um, I, I, I'll make this argument. If you guys don't want to get this on the knock list, then I think by default, you're going to have to take a look at the entire Jack Reacher franchise if the argument is, is he a spy or is he not? And then probably dismiss the Jack Reacher franchise. But that's just my own personal take about uh, this movie, which I, I, I was just kind of sucked into from moment one. Scott? Uh, I only had a couple of quick thoughts. Uh, first of all, it was nice to see the uh, the Audubon, Audubon Society return after uh, a brief appearance in Dr. No. Uh, I, I only have only ever heard about this thing from these two films. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the other thing was Ice Bullets. Is that a real thing? <laughs> I don't think so. Mr. Freeze has been using them for decades in the <laughs> comics, Scott. <laughs> And, and he always says, "Ice to beat you. <laughs> Could you use that voice for the rest of this episode, please? No, I would just wear out my voice. But uh, yeah, so did you have any final thought just on the movie itself? 
no, I mean, overall, I, I love this film. It took me a second viewing to really get into it and understand what was going on, but I'm a huge fan of what they did. Yeah, I just really love the tapestry this whole movie painted. I mean, it's so 70s in the best ways. Um, you know, obviously the jazz score, that was number one. But um, you just look at, you know, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, this real pessimism creeping into cinema at this point. And I love that this movie, as well as Parallax View, really tackle that in an interesting way, the idea of the powers that be working behind the scenes in nefarious ways. And I think this movie gets it across without ever being preachy or, you know, really drawing the real world parallels. It lets you pick up on it. You also just have touches on, of course, the oil crisis of 1973 that was a big deal in the U.S. And, you know, the movie's tied into that. So it feels of its time, but also you're able to go back and watch it. And it just completely works now. It doesn't feel dated. It feels like a movie that could have been made today, with exception to telephone science and maybe some of the stuff with Faye Dunaway. But I enjoyed the hell out of it. Well, I think that brings us quite smoothly on to the question, which is, does Three Days of the Condor make the knock list? Tyler, down to you. I say you got to put it on. Like, this is a, a, a taut movie. It follows a lot of spies. I am sucked in from moment one. Does it have kind of the, the secret gizmos that you might get in some of the other movies uh, on the knock list, like in, say, Goldeneye? Nah, but does it need it? I say, nah, it, it works for me. It makes me feel as if I'm within this spy world every moment throughout. It just has a sense of realism to it that you might not get in Six Underground. Well, that's a yes from Tyler. Cam? I love that you keep picking on Six Underground. Like, I, I love that this movie that people probably forgot the second they watched it is being referenced multiple times on this podcast. It, it made my but... top 10 list, obviously. <laughs> Um, but no, I also agree. Like this is a yes for me. I think this movie is kind of important in the world of spy cinema for being one of the primary efforts in the seventies that really had a big impact. Um, this movie was a hit with audiences as well. Um, and to me, you know, it just is such a thrill ride in that low key style of the seventies that it just had me engrossed from beginning to end. I mean, to me, I honestly put this alongside a movie like The Ipcris File. And Scott, I know The Ipcris File has become the most polarizing film um, that we've ever tackled on this podcast. But for me, it has that similar joy to it, the sort of lo-fi spiced craft built on, you know, kind of slow, methodical characters. And I think this is an amazing example of it. Well, it doesn't even matter what I say at this point, but I'll throw my two cents in anyway. Um, I, on second viewing loved this film i actually like it a lot more than uh, i thought about your chris file and i think tyler's right the word taught is correct but it gives their, its characters room to breathe and moments room to sit in and you to sort of appreciate the world but it doesn't feel like it's dragging its feet either at the same time it's a very it has it's a well-paced film and it does keep you on the edge of your seat and i really liked it so i would definitely recommend it i have to ask gentlemen are you two now going to track down the um condor tv series that's been running for two years and catch up on the world of condor well you know what cam as robert redford uh, said at the end uh, you play games i told them a story a television story on television <laughs> <laughs> that's right well sounds like we have three yeses so by the looks of it three days of the condor is joining the esteemed knock list Thank you, Tyler, for joining us. Where can people find you if they want to hear more? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N, -N, as in knocklist. And what about the Subspace Transmissions podcast? Eh, I mean, 
it's it's a work in progress. Six years. <laughs> yeah, you can find that wherever you get podcasts, as well as subspacepod.com. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you have it. That's a yes from Tyler, a yes from Cam, and a yes from me. That is a full-on three-way yes, and therefore, three days of the Condor is making the knock list. And with that revelation, the dossier on this film is complete and filed as classified. But the question is, Cam, what are we doing next week? We are going sci-fi once again. We are going back to hang out with the Men in Black in Men in Black 2, the sequel from 2002. I don't remember much about this film, but I am somewhat excited to go back and revisit it with the, uh, with the joy I took out of watching the first one. We will de-neuralize you just in time for that podcast. <laughs> Good, because I can't remember anything about it. All right, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Men in Black 2 before next week's episode, where we're going to really dive deep into that one. And before we get into the rest of the social media, if you do want to read a little bit more about the Knocklist Cam, where can people find it? Yeah, letterbox.com slash spyhards. You can head there and see which movies we've covered, which ones uh, made the knock list, which ones didn't, as well as a peek at upcoming episodes. And don't forget to follow us discreetly, of course, at spyhards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck among the shadows.